Let's pray together. Lord, indeed, your mercy overwhelms our darkness. We are great sinners, but you indeed are a great Savior, and you are our only hope. We thank you that you have been kind to us who did not have the resources in ourselves to look for your kindness. You rescued us. We come now before your word, O Lord, because we need you. We need to hear from you. We need to have our hearts recalibrated to your truths. We need comfort. We need encouragement. We need resources for the war that is the Christian life. We pray that you would grant these by your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. May we have soft hearts ready to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. And I'll give you an update on the preaching schedule for the next few weeks here. Uh, Next Sunday, we have the privilege of having Pastor Jerry Ragg here from Grace Emanuel Bible Church in Jupiter, Florida. And uh, Pastor Jerry is going to uh, do for us sort of a second half of an installation for uh, John Anderson as a pastor here. So um, we've been able to hear John preach and teach Uh, He's been involved in small groups, and many of you have already gotten to know him, Uh, but we get to hear uh, from the church the Andersons came from in Florida a little bit uh, through through the heart of Jerry, and we're excited to hear God's word opened, uh, as well as to be encouraged into uh, the way God has just been kind to us in bringing the Andersons uh, to serve this church. And then March 14th, uh, we will conclude Romans, Uh, that is the plan. So two weeks from today, the last uh, installment from Romans 16. And then the following week, uh, we're going to start Romans all over again, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, because it's just so hard to say goodbye. No, I'm not allowed to do that. Josh Kelsa will preach a series of three sermons, and I look forward to uh, you getting to hear what's on his heart in those sermons. Uh, Easter, kind of right in the middle of Josh's series, Uh, April 18th will be our 20th anniversary service as a church. It's going to be a a membership Sunday, a baptism Sunday, and a celebration of God's kindness to this church as we review our own little window of church history. And then on May 2nd, John Anderson is going to begin a series in the Gospel of Mark. So lots to look forward to there, and uh, we'll dive into a couple of verses in Romans 16 this morning. A rite of passage for many is learning how to ride a bicycle. Uh, That can be a challenge, uh, fraught with dangers. In our home, at least in the uh, latter stages of this rite of passage in our home, we developed what we called bicycle boot camp. And this was a concentrated effort to get our kids over the hump of learning to ride a bicycle. Uh, We found that trying every once in a while ended up in skin, knees, and tears, and not much progress, but bicycle boot camp afforded an opportunity for a concentrated effort to just get on the bike and ride. There still were tears, that's all right. Um, But I remember the, 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 the street version. We had a grass down a hill version, and then we had the street uh, episode, and uh, those were always a little bit scary, wobbly bikes. Um, hard asphalt, and it's going to be difficult to, to see this come to fruition. And you give a kid a push, and you say, pedal, pedal, pedal. 
You're doing great. Watch out for that curb. You're doing good. Don't worry, this is fun. Oh, wait, watch out for that car. And it's a mixture of encouragements, warnings, hope. Watch out. Keep your eyes on the horizon. Keep pedaling. This is fun. Don't worry, it gets better. Praying. This morning's passage is something like all of those messages. You're doing well, but watch out. But don't worry, praying for grace. That's what the passage before us is all about. Let's read together Romans 16, verses 19 and 20. Paul says to this church at Rome, The report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The main idea grammatically in this section is that the obedience of the believers in the Roman churches was well known. Their obedience was well known. What did Paul believe then the churches needed? How did Paul respond to their well-known obedience? Well, he was glad. He said, but watch out. Then he says, don't worry. And he says, I'm praying for grace. Kind of like bicycle boot camp. Paul responds to the Roman believer's well-known obedience with, first of all, personal joy. With personal joy. That's his first response. Look at verse 19. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. There's their well-known obedience. Therefore, Paul says, here's his first response, I am rejoicing in you. I'm rejoicing. Paul has joy that believers in a church, most of whom he's never met, are following the Lord. That their obedience to the gospel and a, a surrender to Christ has resulted in lives of obedience in keeping with the gospel. The believers at Rome live lives marked by a subjection to the obligations of following Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Apparently, the Roman church was known widely for this very thing, and it brought Paul joy. Their sweet obedience, their soft-heartedness, their teachability, these are all great and necessary things. But, but that soft-hearted, teachable, sweet spirit brings with it also a particular vulnerability. We looked at that a little bit last week. It leads to the second response that Paul has to their well-known obedience. Not just personal joy Paul has, but a concern for them and a compulsion to make, number two in your outline, an appeal to discernment. He has, in response to their well-known obedience, personal joy. And secondly, he has a compulsion to appeal to them to exercise discernment. Notice what he says in verse 19, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in evil. The four at the beginning of verse 19 connects it to what we looked at last week. The therefore in the middle of verse 19 reinforces this connection. And I want you to see the connection between what we're looking at this morning and what we looked at in verses 17 and 18. Look back at verse 17. You remember this charge Paul gave the church, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. 
And you remember from last week that there is this ever-present danger for us throughout church history in our own day and for the Roman church in Paul's day, a clear and present danger that there would be infiltrators in the church that cause disagreement and fractures in the precious truth unity of the church. And they bring about these divisions because they are slaves of their own appetites. They're not actually serving Christ. They're serving themselves. They, they want a following so they can feed their flesh, whether it's ambition or pride, financial gain or licentious living. And the Christian response to such dangerous characters is to mark them out and to shun them. To mark them out and to shun them. That's what we looked at last week. They deceive the hearts of the innocent, Paul says, the unsuspecting, the naive, and they pull away people after themselves. And often, only after the church is divided and destroyed and people's pursuit of Christ is spoiled, is the true character of those divisive people revealed. And the Christian response is to be intolerant of that kind of thing. It's not loving to let a rabid dog play with the kids. Spoiler alert, old yeller had to be shot. It's often said that doctrine divides. Have you heard that? Doctrine divides. Doctrine doesn't divide. No fault of a true and accurate representation of God's word, that, that doesn't divide. Um, people will say, well, doctrine divides, so don't make a big deal of doctrine. It, it, that produces disagreements, and, and our goal is unity, and we need to boil down doctrine to the lowest common denominator so that we can all just get along, because that's really the goal. Well, number one, that's the wrong kind of unity. It's a sham unity. And it's not doctrine's fault that there are divisions. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The truth of God's word, rightly understood, unifies. We can all get around together something that's outside of ourselves. And that is the definition of unity that Paul enjoins for us in Ephesians chapter 4, where we are to grow into maturity, into conformity with Christ who is the head, not in negotiating away our differences and getting along with each other. It is not doctrine that divides Christians from one another. It is the departure from New Testament doctrine that divides. True schismatics are those who have left New Testament truth and taken others with them. Taking a serious approach to making sure our teaching conforms to the New Testament does not at all divide a church. It actually is the true remedy for the unity of Christ's precious body of believers. A clear, systematic unfolding of truth of Scripture does not create division. It rather can reveal fractures that may already exist. In the way that holding up a cracked plate to the light exposes the cracks that are already there. Did the light create the cracks? The light shows them to be what they are. Paul says, I rejoice, Roman believers, in your well-known obedience, but the couple of dangers that come with your teachability with your subjection to Christ is, number one, you're a big target. Number two, your soft-heartedness, your teachableness makes you vulnerable to certain threats. The, the fact that the Roman believers were in the heart of the Roman Empire and embracing the gospel and word had gotten out both in the physical human realm and in the spiritual realm put a bullseye on their back. And the fact that they had a soft-hearted, humble, teachable response to Christ and to the gospel means that if someone comes in and says, hey, I'm of Jesus, follow me over here away from him, some may follow. It's a real vulnerability. 
And it is important that Christians have discernment. That is, in verse 19, you have to know the difference between good and evil to even obey this command. Look what Paul says. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. That means you have to know the difference. You have to know the difference. Some translations say, be excellent in what is good. That's a good translation. And, and the word comes from the root word, which we, uh, in many other places, just translate wise. It's reminiscent of Genesis 3, 5, and 6. You remember the scene, the Garden of Eden, and Satan comes in the form of a snake before Adam and Eve. And he says, God knows that in the day you eat from that fruit, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise... She took from its fruit and ate. She gave to her husband, he also ate. And the human race hasn't yet recovered. It's interesting that she was teased into thinking there is a wisdom beyond God's revelation from a talking snake that was desirable. And I think there's a play on words here in the conflict between good and evil and what we are supposed to be wise about and what we are supposed to be innocent or even ignorant about. It highlights the tragedy of the fall from God's favor of the human race. And it points to the ever-present temptation for us to go find so-called wisdom around and apart from God's ways. Here we are enjoined to Cling to what is good. Be excellent in it. Be wise in what is good. Don't go after a worldly wisdom. Don't go after the, the kind of wisdom that says, I need to know everything by experience. Be excellent. Be wise in what is good. The Satan's deception is, investigate everything. There's evil, there's good, go be wise in all of it, your eyes will be opened. Here Paul says, be an expert in what is good. Just to review a little bit, and I uh, borrow a summary from commentator Colin Cruz on sort of a list in the New Testament of things that are good. Uh, we'll start just in Romans 12.2, God's will is good. Romans 12.9, we are to cling to what is good. In 12.21, we are to overcome evil with good as believers. Romans 15.2, we are to please our neighbors for their good. We are to be excellent here in this verse in what is good. In 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus says He gives rewards to His own for doing good. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God's grace abounds so that we would abound in good works. Galatians 6.10, the Command is, do good to all, particularly those of the household of faith. Ephesians 2.10, God prepared in advance that we would walk in good works that He prepared. Uh, we walk in those things which He does. Ephesians 2.10 um, makes it clear that God is both the producer and the rewarder of good in the Christian life. Ephesians 4.28, we are to work hard at doing good with our hands, not stealing Ephesians 4.29, we are to speak only what is good for mutual edification. Ephesians 6.8, uh, 
Jesus rewards good done in the body. Colossians 1.10, Christians are to bear fruit in every good work. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, do good for one another. 2 Thessalonians 2.16, Paul's prayer is that God would strengthen believers in every good deed and word. 1 Timothy 2.10, women are to be busy about doing good deeds. 2 Timothy 2.21, everyone is to cleanse himself in order to be prepared for God's good works. 2 Timothy 3.16, God's word itself is profitable because it's breathed out by him to equip everyone for good works. And Titus 3.1, believers are to be ready to do whatever is good. Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is good, think on it. Dwell in it. Set up your abode there. How do, how do we do that? There, there are a lot of commands there to think on what is good, to do what is good, to benefit others with what is good. Paul says here in Romans 16, be excellent in what is good. I think we have to study God's word. Memorize God's word. Meditate on God's word to have our minds filled with the kinds of things that fit into the category of what actually is good. We cannot define it the way the world defines it. We can't define it the way our flesh would want to define it. But we follow God and his descriptions and his definitions of what is good. And these things are to characterize the Christian life. Be excellent in them. Are you excellent in what is good? Are you an expert? Are you a student of the good? And notice the contrast. Be excellent in what is good, but be innocent of evil. A word that literally means just unmixed or pure, free from mixed motives. It came to speak of a metaphor in a, in a person's life or disposition that they were guileless, right? No hidden agendas and secret motives. It came to be used metaphorically in the sense of uh, simplicity, like childlike simplicity, childlike innocence. And by innocence, I don't mean sinless perfection, but a, but a childlike unawareness of certain categories of evil, to be naive. When it comes to good, be excellent. Be the expert. Be a lifelong student. Get your doctorate in good. When it comes to evil, don't know anything about it. Be innocent. Be naive. You don't have to be a man of the world. You don't have to really know how evil works. Be unsophisticated. Don't pursue experimental knowledge of unclean things. Don't get skilled in evil. Don't train yourself in deception and deviant behavior. Just don't know what any of that is like. 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul says something similar. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. It actually is a Christian maturity to be immature about evil. <laughs> Satan wanted Adam and Eve to become wise by experimentation in their rebellion against God. God wants us to be wise by avoiding it altogether. We are to be Bible-wise, not street-wise. It's okay not to know. It's okay to not understand what sophisticated people are talking about when they're discussing things that displease God. To have dirty jokes go over your head. It's a good thing. <laughs> I don't want to know. Are you an expert at what is good? Are you an ignoramus when it comes to evil? These things are commended here for us. And Paul knew that the young church in the capital of the empire, well known for its obedience to the truth, would be a rich target for spiritual forces. 
and soft-hearted, teachable people could be vulnerable to subtle infiltration. So as we learned last week, they're to have their radar up continually, constantly, laboring to discern the difference between good and evil and recognizing the ever-present danger to our souls and threats to the church, both from without and within. And you think, wow, if this is the state of the church, if this is what it's like to live the Christian life, If these are the circumstances of our lives together in the body of Christ, constant surveillance, perpetual diligence, watching our own lives and our own teaching, working to submit to the Scriptures under constant threat of defection, departure, dissension, and division, I'm tired. All this wartime vigilance is exhausting. I mean, can't we just rest? Can't we just have one island of truth Just circle the wagons and and just have truth here where no infiltrators and we can relax and not worry and not have to work so hard. Can't I just get a pina colada and a hammock between two palm trees with the sea waves gently kissing the sand beneath me? Isn't that what the Christian life is supposed to be about? Paul does not offer the Roman Christians in this passage a hammock. Instead, he gives them theology. Look at the next verse. Third point in the outline, Paul responds to their well-known obedience with timely theology. He gives them here hope. He gives them doctrine. Specifically, he gives them theology proper. That's the study of God himself. He gives them Satanology. He gives them uh, eschatology, end times, the last things. He gives them Christology, a study of Christ. He gives them soteriology, a Input on the doctrine of salvation. Look at verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Have you memorized that verse? (laughs) The God of peace will soon crush Satan. This is good news. This is hope that the Roman believers needed. Look, if the radar was supposed to be up, if this is a wartime mentality, if I've always got to be on the lookout in my own heart for subversion of truth, and if I've got to, I can't just be naive about the fact that there are some who would infiltrate the church and want to destroy what God loves. Is that forever? Will that that just keep going and going and going? How long is this? And what Paul says to them, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. What's the connection? Why is Satan mentioned here? Well, because Satan is a real personal spiritual being, an enemy of God and an enemy of his people. Because Satan has always taken an interest in believers. And specific to this context, Satan is the invisible agent behind false doctrine, behind false teachers, behind spiritual attacks, behind church division. And what is God's promise here? That God will crush Satan under your feet soon. Soon. We're going to spend some time this morning with the theology that's in this verse. Let's start with Satanology. Let's think about this for a second. Satan uh, means adversary or enemy or opponent. He is called that in Revelation 12.9. He is also titled the tempter. 
Matthew 4.3. He is called Beelzebul, the ruler of demons in Matthew 12. He is called the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. He is the enemy, 1 Timothy 5. The god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4. The ruler of the world, John 12.31. Your adversary, 1 Peter 5.8. The dragon, the great dragon, Revelation 12.9. The serpent of old, Revelation 12. And the devil, Matthew 4.1. Devil, that word means accuser. In Revelation 12, he is called the accuser of the brethren. And in Revelation chapter 12, which is still present to the church age, he stands in the very throne room of God making accusation against those whom God loves. And some of those things might be true. He is personal. He is individual. Satan is also singularly present, right? He's not omnipresent. And he's on a short leash. He's powerful, but he's not omnipotent. He's shrewd. He knows more than we do, but he's not omniscient. He's old. He's deceptive. He's the father of lies. And he's murderous. He's bent on the destruction of God's image bearers. We bear God's stamp or his imprint, and Satan hates God and seeks to destroy what resembles God. You can read about Satan in Genesis 3, Job 1 and 2, and Zechariah 3 to see who he is and what he does. Satan has helpers, demons, angelic beings uh, who cannot be rescued and only sin. Satan also has other helpers, humans, that are called his children. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, we did a sermon called The Seed of the Snake or The Children of the Snake. That's on the website, and you can find out who all of Satan's children are. Let's talk about some of his activities. He blinds the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He is behind false teaching that 1 Timothy calls the doctrine of demons. He tricks and enslaves professing Christians with false teaching, 2 Timothy 2.26. He wants to trip up leadership in the church, 1 Timothy 3. He invests in gossip and busybodies and improper conversations in the women's ministry at the church at Ephesus in 1 Timothy 5. He disguises as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. He enlists those who also wear that disguise, 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen. False teachers come disguised as good guys. He gets a foothold with Christians through anger, Ephesians 4.27. He has schemes, Ephesians 6.11, traps, 1 Timothy 3.7, and snares, 2 Timothy 2.26. He is a roaring lion roaming about the earth seeking someone to devour. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate, sang Martin Luther. Here we have this promise of God. Paul's timely truth for Roman believers and for us. The God of peace will soon crush him. Does anything strike you as odd about that statement? The God of peace will crush. He is the God of peace. Not the 60s flower child hippie peace. Not pre-World War II Neville Chamberlain peace. Appease Hitler, leave him alone, and he'll leave us alone. Forget our promises to Poland, Czechoslovakia, whatever. <laughs> no, God's peace is a different kind of peace altogether. He's not a peaceful being that just doesn't like to ruffle anybody's feathers. God's peace will crush 
He is the God of peace. He's not peaceful. He is actually called Yahweh of hosts. Hosts just means armies, armies of supernatural beings waging war on his behalf. The God who brings peace, the only one who can end the conflict of good and evil, he does through total war. Peace through superior firepower. You know the Old Testament word for peace? Shalom. It's used as a greeting, hello, goodbye, yo, peace out, chuck the deuce. Shalom means peace, but never in the Old Testament does it convey the idea of a sort of internal calmness. It is a horizontal relational peace or a vertical relational peace between God and man. It's characterized by righteousness, which is actually a war against what displeases God. Shalom actually encompasses an Old Testament theology that brings everything together under the sovereign rule of Almighty God. Shalom happens when paradise is in place. Shalom happens when every enemy is subdued. For people to even use shalom as a greeting sort of implies this longing, this wish, prayer, desire that God's peace would reign, an implied longing for a return to Eden, a reverse of the curse, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 and the crushing of the snake. God's shalom in the Old Testament does not simply indicate a cessation of hostilities, but a complete and total subjugation of everything that differs. Unconditional surrender, total eradication of all enemies, Shalom in the Old Testament was tied to righteousness. It means that shalom will not happen because humans learn to get along. Shalom will happen when every knee surrenders to Christ. And God will get His peace. Isaiah 48 and 49, you can read them this afternoon if you'd like. God's peace there is tied to Israel's repentance. In fact, God indicts Israel and said, look, you could have had shalom. Uh, Well-being is the New American Standard translation, but it is the same Hebrew word for peace. It is the word shalom. You could have had it if you had obeyed. (laughs) And then in chapter 49 of Isaiah, God's peace is tied to Israel's repentance and return to the land. And in Isaiah 48, 22, God says there's no peace for the wicked. God will get his peace by crushing Satan. Again, Luther saying, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Notice in this verse that I hope you have memorized by now, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Do you have it? Did you notice the verb tense? Will crush. And another temporal identifier in there, soon That means it's not yet. There is a sort of popularized, just sort of uh, look over the idea without paying attention to the details, Christus Victor theology that says that Satan was crushed at the cross. Well, not according to this verse. Satan was not crushed there. After the cross, Paul writes to the Roman believers, the God of peace will crush Satan. It's coming. He's still the accuser of the brethren, still roaming, devouring, deceiving the nations. He's not locked up yet. He's not crushed yet. By the way, the book of the month this month is Matt Wehmeyer's 
Revelation 20 and the Millennial Debate. If you haven't picked it up yet, I encourage you to read it. It's tiny, it's small, it's like a booklet. No offense, Matt. It's great because it just sits Revelation 20 in front of you and asks some really critical questions about that text. In fact, why don't we turn there and just ask a couple of questions? They're related to what Paul says here. Matt's larger book, On Millennialism and the Age to Come, is also recommended reading. We have that at the book table. <clears throat> Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And then notice down in verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations from the four corners of the earth. Look at verse 9. They came upon the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Game over. One little word shall fell him. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. These two events, the locking up of Satan so that he will not deceive the nations anymore for a thousand years, the millennial reign of Christ on the earth, and then the eternal state, which involves the lake of fire, which Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 called the the hell prepared for the devil and his angels. Those events are still yet future. What is Satan doing now? He's not locked up and he's not in the lake of fire. He's roaming the earth seeking whom he may devour. And he's involved in church life and activities all over the New Testament. I was involved for years in a ministry that uh, prayed for the binding of Satan. Prayed for the command or the, the encouragement of Christians to go about and to bind Satan. Well, that's an interesting exercise. I always wanted to know who kept letting him out. He gets bound every Sunday. There's a problem with seeing the church as the kingdom. If the kingdom hasn't come and it lasts a thousand years and it's characterized by Satan being locked up, not deceiving the nations. See, the details of Revelation 20 don't allow us to read that as the church age. They also don't allow us to read it as the eternal state because there's a further rebellion yet to come where he's let out, deceives the nations again, and then shows up before the great white throne judgment and cast into the lake of fire. The details of Revelation 20 are critical for us in understanding the nature of our relationship to Satan now what he does now in the world, and the hope that is coming. He will be under the boot of Christ one day, and he will be cast into the lake of fire, ultimately. Both of these things come under the category, in my view, of what it means for the God of peace to crush him. This event, crushing Satan, is still future. This is why Paul mentions it here in Romans 16. The church age is marked not by the defeat of Satan, but by the very real and present threat of Satan's presence in and antagonism toward the church. So the message to Christians is, hold on, Christians. Be vigilant now for a short time, because soon. 
soon. Now this verse, again, I hope you have it memorized by now. The God of peace will soon crush Satan is a reference, a very clear reference to Genesis 3.15. I want you to look back at that. Genesis 3.15. All the way back at the beginning. It should be like page 2 or 3. Or if you've got one of those study Bibles, page 17. Satan deceived the woman. She gave to the man. They ate. We all died. And God comes and addresses, first of all, the snake. Verse 14. Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go. Dust you will eat all the days of your life. Notice verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Really remarkable promise. And this is a promise that is called by theologians the proto-evangel, the proto-euangelion, or the gospel in sort of seed form in Genesis 3.15. It is a promise of hope as God's solution to the fall of man. And we read our Bibles forward from this promise, looking for the fulfillment of this very thing. And and notice what's promised here in 3.15 about the, the snake and the seed of the woman. The snake is promised to receive a blow to the head. By the way, bruising of the heel, bruising of the head, or crushing of the heel, crushing of the head. It's the same word in Hebrew. The idea is a severe blow to a heel, a, a terrible injury, but not a, not a mortal blow, not an not a, a end-of-story blow, but a crushing blow to the head of the snake, a death blow, as it were. And the whole Bible flows out from this promise. All of human history has been the stage of this cosmic war between God and Satan, between the woman's seed and the seed of the snake. The end is not in doubt. It's not a cosmic war between equals. God is working out His purposes for human history. God will crush the snake through a descendant of Eve. And who is that son of Eve that would do the crushing? Well, it's not Cain. He was a murderer. It's not Abel. He's dead. It's not Seth, whom she named Seed. It's not Noah, whose name means rest, in hope that God would finally give us rest. It's not Abraham. It's not David. It's not Solomon. It's not the ancient kings of Israel and Judah. It's not the prophets. It's not John the Baptist. And you're going all through biblical history looking for the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the snake. And of course, it is Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. It's the Greek word for Messiah. The anointed one, the expected one, the promised one. 1 John 3.8 says this about Jesus, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. John 16.11, the ruler of this world, that is Satan, has been judged by the Son of God. Colossians 2.15, when God had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. And verse 14 of that chapter makes it clear, Christ's crosswork is the place of God's triumph he's referring to there, where God disarmed rulers and authorities, mocked them publicly, 
and displays his triumph. The, the crosswork of Christ is so critical here. And if you think about what it takes for someone who is a seed of the snake to be adopted out of that family and brought into God's family, supernatural work is required, new birth is required, and forgiveness of all the crimes done while under the wrong empire is required. And at the cross, God crushing His own Son brings about rescue and ransom for countless slaves of sin under the dominion of darkness who walked about in their transgressions and sins spiritually dead under the rulership of the God of this world, Satan. And God plucks them out and makes them His by grace. Makes them objects of His love when they were naturally objects of His wrath. Makes them no longer sons and daughters of a snake, brood of vipers. But those who have fled the coming wrath by running to Jesus Christ and believing the gospel in totality. The only hope for rescue from one dominion into the other dominion. From a dominion of death and sin and destruction and the wrath of God into the dominion of grace and light and goodness and life. The only hope is the cross of Jesus Christ. And by the cross, think about this. Satan has been bent on interfering with and murdering the seed line promise from the beginning. It's why Cain was a murderer and he killed Abel. Because Satan, the snake, was threatened by the promise that a descendant of the woman would crush him. So what does he do? Take him out. Take out all the seeds. I believe Satan interferes with the seed line in Genesis 6. And then you see Satan's murderous attempt to snuff out descent from Adam, Eve, through Abraham, through Moses, and the whole Exodus episode, murdering all the babies, through the children of the line of Judah, through Herod's murderous attempts in Bethlehem. Satan has been at this a long time. And when Satan finally got what he wanted, the murder of the seed, what happened? That bruising of the heel becomes the very place where Jesus the seed gets victory over the snake and guarantees for all of the people that are in Christ that he will indeed crush that serpent. His doom is sure. Psalm 110 prophesies about that Messiah. Yahweh says to David's Lord, that is to Christ, the Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus has come, died on the cross. Now he is doing that very thing, waiting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession on our behalf, but waiting to reign on the earth when he will crush the head of the snake at God the Father's direction. And notice what this verse says. You've memorized it already, and I'm so glad for that. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Did you notice that? There's a surprise here in Romans 16, 20. God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, Christian. Wait, was I in Genesis 3.15? No, you weren't in Genesis 
But Romans 16.20 is indicating something really critical. You are under the boot of God's judgment, rightly. And you got lifted out from under the boot of his judgment. By the way, the idea of putting someone under your foot was a military term. You can find it in the book of Joshua, where the enemy was subjugated under the boot of the commanding general of the army, conquering army. To be under the boot was to be defeated. And, and that's where we were. As enemies of God, slaves of sin, under the dominion of darkness, we were under the boot of Christ's judgment. And Christ lifted us up. God, by the Holy Spirit, united us with Christ. And we were no longer under the boot, but over the boot. And when, the, the, when Satan is crushed under the foot of Jesus, the Christ, and we are united with him, guess who's under us, underfoot? Satan. This is a remarkable surprise Revelation from God in Romans 16, 20. It's the only place it's mentioned that Satan is under the foot of Christians. It's surprising. It's remarkable. It's this one who is opposed to us, who, who stands accusing the brethren before the very throne room of God, and thankfully Romans 8, 33 is true, and God in his courtroom is says, can say, God is the one who justifies, who is he that condemns? Not even Satan in the throne room of heaven making accusations. Nobody can bring a condemnation against God's elect. And that one who tries and tries and tries and who interferes and meddles in God's business in the church day and night tirelessly, that one will be crushed underfoot. We are rescued now to one day reign with Christ. I will take a moment and just observe a hermeneutical principle on display here in Romans 16, 20. Hermeneutics is how we study the Bible, right? How we read the Bible. And we should read the Bible like we read other books in this way, um, left to right from beginning to end. We should understand the Bible in its pieces, right? You don't get a, a, a letter from your most cherished loved one and read the last three words first or the third to last paragraph, out of order with the rest. No, you want to read it in context. You want to read it from top to bottom. We want to read our Bibles the way God wrote them, left to right. I know Hebrew was written right to left, so kind of work to the middle or something. But understanding our Bible the way God revealed it is so critical. In Genesis 3.15, he made a very explicit promise that is clearly understood on the face of Genesis 3.15, that God would crush the head of the snake. And we get to Romans 16, 20, there's something added. God will crush him under your feet, Christian. Now, what we don't do is say that Romans 16, 20 is interpreting Genesis 3.15. What Genesis 3.15 really means is that God would crush the snake, serpent, uh, underneath the feet of Christians. It doesn't say that. It's not what Genesis 3.15 means. What Genesis 3.15 meant is that a seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. And what Genesis 3.15 means today is still the same thing it always meant. We don't go back and change Genesis 3.15 to match further revelation in Romans 16.20. Does that make sense? There is what we call the progress of revelation or progressive revelation. We don't read the Old Testament through the lens of the new as if the Old Testament couldn't be understand, understood until we had the New Testament. No, the Old Testament was clear. God wrote it. He wrote to people to be understood. I would commend to you John Anderson's equipping our series on Old Testament clarity. 
and the authority of God's word in a single static meeting for Old Testament texts. There's a theology out there today that says we can only understand the Old Testament through the lens of New Testament scriptures. And we would just say Genesis 3.15 still means what it always meant. And Romans 16.20 adds something so significant. And it's just wonderful to watch God's plan unfold. We don't read backwards and redefine Older Testament texts. This is new revelation, new details that God reveals. And it's right in line with Genesis 3.15. It's in the same trajectory, on the same path. And we see that when God fulfills Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. As God reveals more of the plan, we find out a lot more details about that. And what amazing reality that you and I, united to Christ, get to reign in victory over this great enemy. Soon. Soon. When I think of the word soon, I'm thinking lunch is soon. And sometimes when we read biblical texts that deal with an imminent return of Christ, it could happen any moment and the day is near and it's nearer now than it was yesterday. Okay, yeah, it's nearer than it was yesterday. I got that. But soon? I mean, 2,000 years later? Is that really soon? And many, many commentators, many really smart people have said, Paul didn't know what he was talking about. Paul was wrong. Paul's eschatology was flawed. Paul wasn't wrong. It it is soon. It is soon. Our our time scale's off, right? Compared to eternity, the return of Christ is soon. And unfortunately for a lot of people, it will be sooner than we're ready for. But for you, Christian, who are holding on in hope and clinging to God's promises and living in a wartime mentality in the church and recognizing that perpetual vigilance is hard, it's hard enough just to keep track of my own heart and to wrestle it to the ground, much less to keep my eyes open to what's going on around me and care for others and watch out for dangers and love his church. And will this ever end soon? Hang on, hold fast. Before Satan is crushed, what do we do? Constant vigilance, wartime mentality. And in the meantime, the God of peace supplies peace for us. Not total war, subjugation of every enemy yet. But the Psalm 23, God has prepared us a table in the presence of our enemies kind of peace. Supplies of internal peace in the midst of troubles and turmoils and tribulations. And that really puts us in a place of a constant need of grace, doesn't it? Paul rejoiced in the Roman Christians' well-known obedience. He knew they needed discernment. He knew they would need hope grounded in sound doctrine. He also knew they needed sustaining grace. And that leads to the fourth response of Paul here. And it is a prayer for grace. Look at the second half of verse 20. Paul says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We'll close in prayer with that very request. God, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for the hope given in this passage. And we pray, even as Paul desired here, that your grace, your sustaining grace would be with us that we would know it, that we would feel it, that we would operate by it, that we would look to you daily for nourishment and encouragement, 
for refreshment in truth and hope and in all of these things. We thank you that you have already secured a victory and will very soon bring it to pass when the great enemy of our souls is felled with a single word. We look forward to that day and ask that you would help us to persevere in the meantime. In Jesus' name, amen.